This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This week on Into the Archives, this guy was was one of the greatest kickers to ever do it. He's a four-time All-Pro. He's part of the, the 100th anniversary. Greatest football players in the last 100 years. Welcome, Jan Stenerud. Sometimes you just need to enjoy a classic. Join us as we go into the archives. Hey, we going back. And put our ear to the history books with this one. This is Into the Archives. Here's your host, Brett Boone. Jan, thanks for coming on the program. Brett, it's a pleasure. I, the Boone name is pretty well known to me. I know that. I have met at least three other generations, so yeah. it's a real pleasure. <laughs> I'm excited about this. This you're going to give me a tutorial in in the <laughs> the life of a kicker behind the scenes. I'm okay. I, in doing doing my prep work on you, Jan. Really interesting life you you've led, and I want to know this. Growing up in Norway, how how old were you when you saw your first football game? Well, it's a Strange story. I I saw my first football game in Buffalo, New York, in 1962, on the way from Norway to Bozeman, Montana. And the and the game that I saw, and the guy that took me to the game was a guy called Larry Felser. Larry was a sports writer, and more than a writer, he was the columnist and the editor for the sports for the Buffalo Evening News. And he took me to the game, and the Buffalo Bills played the Dallas Texans, which, of course, the next year became the Dallas, became the Kansas City Chiefs. And then, you know, I took it from Buffalo. I took a train to Bozeman, Montana. I got there in early September, and a couple of weeks later, I saw my second game, which was the Montana State Bobcats against, I think it was the North Dakota school. Unbelievable. I mean, so, something you did for a living, became a Hall of Famer doing it. You didn't see your first game till you were 20 years old. That's, well, that's, that, that makes it remarkable. Mind, I, you know, I didn't really play the game, never did play the game, even 19 years no. of football. <laughs> uh, I, um, what happened was I had been recruited. As a, I was a good, I was a top rank, not top rank, but in the top 
10 juniors anyway, in Norway, and that was a national sport. And uh, I was recruited by Montana State uh, on the skiing scholarship, Nordic skiing, which was ski jumping and cross-country skiing. Now, cross-country skiing, I had never raced in that at home. The jumping I'd done since I was seven, eight years old in competition. And so the ski coach there and then other Norwegian guy already on scholarship there, they wrote me a letter and the, the Norwegian guy, his name was Tor, T-O-R, Tor Fagerås, and I recognized his name right away because a few years earlier, he had won the Norwegian national championship in Nordic combined. That means you get points for ski jumping and, and points for cross country. And he was the national champ for two years in the junior class. Um, and of course, my summer sport was soccer. And it wasn't until, and I played on soccer teams when I was seven, eight years old until I, or the week before I left Norway when I was 19. And uh, so at Montana State, <clears throat> I'm answering questions you haven't asked me yet. <laughs> <laughs> Go I ahead. Was part of my workout to get ready for the ski season, it got back to kicking a football or playing football. Um, I always ran the stadium steps since my freshman year and my junior year. I hadn't kicked any kind of a ball for two and a half years. The kicker, who also was a halfback at the time, he was hurt, and he was kicking field goals alone in the main stadium. And I went down there. I'd met him a couple of times, and I said, uh, gosh, I play soccer. Can I try to kick with you? So I kicked with uh, tennis shoes with the toes like he did. And after a half a dozen attempts, I asked him, can you kick with the side of your foot? Like you take a corner kick in soccer. I'm not sure if he knew what a corner kick in soccer was. But nevertheless, he said, yes, you can. There is a guy for the Buffalo Bills called Pete Gogolak, and Pete actually started in 1964 with the Bills, that he was the first soccer star kicker in pro football. So uh, my fellow kicker up at Montana said, I heard about him. So, so I kicked a few, didn't think much of it, did it about three or four times that fall. And uh, the basketball coach at Montana State had seen me from his office window. He ran over to the football coach. It was Jim Sweeney. Related to him, a pretty goddamn famous coach. He won over 200 games, most of them at Fresno State, but he was my coach at Montana State. <laughs> so he hollered at me one before the last home game my junior year. He hollered at me and said, Hey, kicker, get your butt down here. Here you can kick. So that was the first time I kicked right before the last home game my junior year. And I impressed him enough, I guess, that he said, uh, Hey, young man, I don't know your name, but what are you doing tomorrow? And I knew he talked about the pregame meal for the next on Saturday, the next day. And I knew also I knew I wasn't eligible, but also another thought that went through my mind right away, Brett, this is the, this is the land of opportunity. This thing I read about and heard about my whole life. And you know, if, if you're ready when the opportunity knocks, who knows? So I, that's, that's what's the background. And I promise that the next answer will be shorter. <laughs> no, it's awesome. And, it, and it's such a cool story. How, like you said, land opportunity. Who knows if you weren't a ski jumper, we would never know who Jan Stenerud was because you would have never come here. You'd have never been in Montana and you'd have never met that, no, that, that basketball coach that got you to kick. Yeah. And into the last night, I live in the Mission Hills, Kansas, which is a suburb, you know, right out of Kansas City. And just last night, there was a young couple that walked by my house, and the, and the guy asked me, are you Mr. Stenner? I said, yes, I am. He says, well, I'm related to Roger Kraft. Roger Kraft was the basketball coach that saw me at Montana State. Wow. So, uh, that's, that's, <laughs> Roger's that's, still alive. He's 90 years old. He played uh, basketball at Kansas State, and he actually, I heard this many years later, 
Fog Allen is a very famous arena. That is for the KU basketball team, you know, plays their games. And when K-State played KU in the early 50s, Roger Kratt was the first person to score a, uh, get two points and score a basket in that, that arena. That is awesome. So your childhood, you're born and raised, I, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, Fetsund, Norway. That's exactly how you pronounce uh, it, F-E-T-S-U-N-D. Yep. And uh, what were what were you like as a kid? I know you mentioned you played soccer. Eventually, you get into the to the uh, to the ski jumping. But what was it like? Well, teach me what me, was it I like. What was it like growing up in Norway? Well, I, you know, I was born in gosh forty two, so you can figure out how old I'm going to get before the end of the year. <laughs> yeah. uh, far as I can remember, it was we moved in. You know, the, the, the war was over in 1945, and I don't remember that. But a year or two later, I can uh, you remember people talking about the war and a little bit uh, always worried about Russia. Always worried about Russia because Norway was the first country on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. You know, Russia, and then you have Sweden, and Finland, and then uh, Russia. And then as a kid, I, be, I, ski, I can't remember the first time I was on skis. I lived, we lived... Now the now population goes uh, continually from Oslo to where I lived, about 15 miles from downtown Oslo. But it was more farm country than, than the houses were kind of spread out a little bit. And we would play on skis, have a cross country, get my skis on and walk on skis and a pair of poles to the neighbor kids. And so in the wintertime, we ski, we're on skis all the time. And in the summertime, if there was an open field someplace and three or four kids, we played soccer. And that's what we did. And then by the time we got to be seven, eight years old, you actually started in ski meets competition. We had six or seven of those every winter. And then we had, um, then we started playing real games when they played against another team with 11 people on the field. So sports was, uh, my dad was very interested in sports. I had a, he was a good ski jumper. I had an uncle that actually was an alternate for the 19. 28 Olympics, but it goes back a ways. So sports was uh, important, but also I was told from first grade on, my dad had to work construction. He was a carpenter, but he had to work construction uh, after the war. It was tough times. And he said, you and your brother, you got to get good grades because you need to get an indoor job. That's how we that's how we coined it. In other words, you want to get the work in an office or someplace indoor because the winters in Norway, there's no fun to be working outside all the time. And I'm, I'm interested because I've never been to Norway, but l- let me give you an example. As a kid, I'm growing up Friday night. I'm in high school Friday nights. What am I going to do? I'm going to get with my buddies. We're probably going to go to the, whatever the, the football game of, of the high school. And we're going to hang out. What do you do in Norway? What is, what is your typical in high school Friday night? What well, do you do? What do you do for yeah, fun? Well, in the, of course, the, that's before high school, way before that. In high school, no, we didn't do as much party. I would say partying or getting together quite that much. We see that the, the, the sports there is always through this club sports. The only, the only sport we had in school was one hour. Uh, three times a week was called gymnastics. We did certain things, you know, in the, for that one hour in the, in the, in the, in the gym, in the hall, but all the sports were from club sports. So there was no association with the school itself. But like most people, when we got to be that teenager, I think some of the guys were going in, maybe have a taste of the 
first beer going into Oslo. I was just consumed with sports in those days. I didn't even have a beer until uh, we took a 19 years old, an overnight boat trip from Oslo to Copenhagen, Denmark. And on that boat, the, the beer was really inexpensive. Or the, there was no tax involved in the in the liquor. And we, I remember, I had two or three beers on that trip. But that was the first time. But as far as you know, growing up, I think it was a very natural, normal upbringing. Sports was part of it, but it wasn't part of the school functions. But we got together in other ways. We played cards, and you know, we, we then we went to dances. And then, of course, they didn't have, a date was a new term for me. We went to Norway, went to a dance. The girls, when the music started, when you were 16, 17, 18 years old, they were sitting on one side of the dance hall, and we were on the other one, and the music started. You had to walk across the, the floor and bow and ask for a girl to dance, hoping you wouldn't be turned down, of course. <laughs> that's that's old school. That's old school. Okay, <laughs> you, you you end up you you get on a plane. You ever been to the states before? When you when you came to no, to Bozeman? No, not at all. My first plane ride was uh, in August of 1962. I was about to turn 20 three or four months later. But I had an uncle and aunt that immigrated to the United States, actually to Buffalo, in 1921, and they came back uh, when I. You know, after the war, of course, I came back before that. But the first visit I remember was in 1947. I was five years old. And then they came back five years after that and five years after that. Um, I remember my aunt gave me a, a dollar bill and my uncle and aunt. They didn't have any kids, but they were talking about America, the big cars, the skyscrapers in New York, Joe Lewis boxing on Friday night, and, and all the, the big, exciting things that were going on in the big, big country. And they actually worked for the Butler family, who owned the Buffalo Evening News, the newspaper in Buffalo, and that's on the way to Montana State in '62. That's how Larry Felser, a sports writer, uh, met me in the Uncle and Aunt's house and took me to that Dallas Texan Buffalo Bills game. Uh, but I'd always had dreams. We knew that America was a that was a, that was the place. That was the most famous, the most uh, modern the most uh, exciting place that I heard about growing up. And when you first got here, what, what did you find to be the big differences? And, and were there any similarities to, to Norway? Well, let's see. Uh, I do remember, of course, landing in New York and the, the buildings were tall. <laughs> My sister had met me. She actually had worked as a guide in the United Nations. They'll come to visit my my auntie was three years older than I was, and she had visited, visited my aunt in, in Buffalo, New York, and worked for the paper, too, and also ended up applying for a job at the United Nations as a guide. And then she did that and later worked for SAS ticketing office, SAS, the Scandinavian Airlines system. So she met me in New York, so I got a first hand of the, of the traffic and the skyscrapers, and we went to a play, I remember, on Broadway, then Buffalo, and then the train all the way to... To Montana, and I, I thought, God, the country is so unbelievably big. Uh, it was 2,000 miles between Buffalo and Bozeman, Montana. <laughs> then when you go to school, I remember in the uh, the uh, the letters of the communication we had that uh, the co- correspondence said, "Welcome to the Montana State Campus." I didn't really know at all what the campus was. When you go to a, at least University of Oslo, I think most of the European schools, you go to the classroom. And of course, you meet your students, you do other things. But the unique thing about the United States, you had you lived in a dormitory, 
You had to do that the freshman year, at least where I went to school. And then you had the sports. You would go to the to basketball games. You go to football games. You go to student union building and be socialized. And then you go to the freshman dances, et cetera. So even to this point, I think the way we do that in the United States, that campus and the college life is unique, and I think it's very special. I still, to this, to this point, I think it was one of the most exciting or fun times of my life. All right. So you're at Montana State. You, you talked about how you went from you, you were there to ski jump and all of a sudden, you know, uh, ski, right? li- li- life happens. The next thing you know, you're you're kicking you're kicking 59 yard field goals your junior year. Well, I, was, I was lucky as hell. They, uh, <laughs> well, that's a, you're way above sea level there. That ball goes farther. Well, if it went a little bit further, it was uh, but that cleared pretty good. There was 59-yard field goal, and unbeknownst to us, they took about a week to find out. He said in the paper, the Bozeman Daily Chronicle, is that Bobcat kicker sets record. It turned out that that kick at that time broke the college record by five yards and the pro record by three yards. So that so that's how the scouts heard about me. So three weeks later, I get a telegram. You know what the draft is nowadays? As a matter of fact, the draft will be in Kansas City next April, and it will be by far the biggest event ever happened in this town. And in those days, I had a telegram. Yeah, J.A.N. Stenner, care of Montana State Athletic Department. Congratulations, you've been drafted in the third round of the AFL redshirt draft. Signed Jack Stedman, who was the president of the Kansas City Chiefs. A couple of days later, the telegram got to me, and I took it into the ski coach. Jim Sweeney, and he said, well, that's great, but tell you what, uh, if you stay in school one more fall quarter, we had a quarter system, and I could have graduated that spring, you can stay on the football team. We'll give you a scholarship. And if you, you may get drafted by the NFL, because we're still before the merger. So I stayed in school, and that year I scored, I think, 82 points, I think, and it's a record for most points ever scored by a college kicker. These records are gone a long time ago, obviously. So then I actually got the NFL then had a special draft over 30 of us, 29 or 30, that had been drafted as future draft choices of the AFL. I mean, they had one year left of eligibility for one reason or another. And the team to pick first was the Atlanta Falcons. They were brand new. They were the first day of 1966. Tommy Nobis was the star, I remember. And uh, so I was drafted for the, after one year, and I was picked by them. So I had a choice to go either to a new or not the strong team yet in the NFL or perhaps the best team in the AFL. And this was two or three years before the merger. And there were some people that called the AFL the Mickey Mouse League. They they weren't as good as the NFL, et cetera. But when I met Hank Stram and Lamar Hunt and Bobby Bathard, he was a scout for us. And uh, Tommy Boyle was the head talent scout. And I guess I called him the general manager and, and Lamar Hunt and Hank, I mentioned those two again. Uh, there was no doubt where I wanted to go. I wanted to go to Kansas City. But I went to uh, Atlanta just to listen to what they, how much money they were going to offer. And <laughs> I got right. a little bit more out of Kansas City than I got. I mean, I got anyway to Kansas City. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. 
That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Your senior year, you're an All-American in football and as a ski jumper. All right, I got a question for you. Well, From somebody that, some, some, somebody that knows nothing about ski jumping. You're playing football <laughs> and you're ski jumping. When is ski jumping season, Jan? I need to know. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't well, interfere sure with your football season. season. You know, the, the ski, as a matter of fact, when the Sweeney asked me about my first question, him, I get a scholarship for this kick in the football? And he said, yes, you know, I give you a scholarship. I didn't know you would get that. I had a ski scholarship, you know, my the first year I kicked there. So uh, the ski season at Montevideo Star was always, uh, we, we went to, and trained, we had a ski jump, 16 miles out of Bozeman, not a big one, they jumped 100 and, 50 feet to measure the, the, the distance in the air from the way you do the takeoff, you call it. You come down the ramp, pick up speed, now you jump at the edge of the takeoff, you dive into the air, hope the skis are on to your right, and then you go down the hill. That hill, we jumped about 150 feet. Fairly small hill, but that's our practice jump. So we had five or six ski meets during the winter months. Uh, and, it's, and one of the nicest meets we went to was actually in Banff, Alberta. That was a not a conference meet, but that was a big ski jump. And they also had a ski jumping meet, and nothing to do with college, but were invited to Wenatchee, Washington. Leavenworth, Washington, they had the biggest, no, there were two biggest ski jumps in America. Was One was in Leavenworth, Washington, and one was in Iron Mountain, Michigan. And in both those hills, we jumped 320, 25 feet. And that was, those were big hills in those days. Now they go almost twice as far. But the, the sport has changed. The kids are really small. The skis are wider. And they, they look like they never land. They just float. And the, I mean, the, the way like jockeys almost, it changed quite a bit. We went higher in those days. We had stocking caps on and, and no no protection at all. But and it was more, uh, they went higher in the air. There were some, you could have some rough falls, but but it was exciting. And, 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 and it worked out. I, had, I broke a leg when I was eight. But since then, I never had a serious injury in ski jumping. But the season so you're off, in the wintertime. You're off to the AFL, and you mentioned earlier uh, in the show, Gogolak was kind of the first soccer-style kicker. You know, back in those days, it was, it was Rick Dempsey, and, and you tow everything. Well, I think you were, you were one of the pioneers of that soccer style, though, and kind of the new way, well, the way now in the NFL where, where there's no such thing as towing the ball. Everybody's a yeah. soccer-style kicker, but you were one of the yeah, pioneers yeah. from that. Yeah, I was the fourth one. Yeah, Charlie, Pete and Charlie Goglacki, premium, put into the league before me. But here's what happened. And Dempsey kicked the field goal in 1970, 63 yards. Uh, I was expected to be the first one to kick 60 yards. I did not. I didn't practice from time to time. But, but the, the interesting thing is, I had no idea about the steps. I didn't see, but there was no NFL channel, obviously, network. There was no ESPN. There were nearly as many games televised that they over on Sunday afternoon. And I never saw, when I was in college, my first step, I lined up a foot from uh, one yard from the ball. Sweeney said, next to the point, you're going to kick it fast. My first step was one backward and then two step forward. It took me little, several weeks before I come up with the steps that I that stuck with. That's pretty much what you see today. But I didn't see Gogolak really kick in person or on TV 
until about two or three years in the league. And the same thing with with your prim. And so you, 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 the basic what they told me is instead of soccer kicking the ball low under the crossbar, you got to kick it high. So I kind of told my body to kick it high. And unlike golf, where I go through about six, seven things <laughs> before I line up to do that. I just kind of, okay, kick it high. And I did. I guess you lead back and you follow through a little bit higher. And um, so I, you're self-taught, obviously. But I, I didn't find out till later. After my rookie year, uh, I had the most field goals in the AFL and I had to go in basic training in the National Guard, I'm at the Fort Polk, Louisiana. And the first newspaper I see in five and a half months, because in, in, when you're in basic training, there's no television, no telephones, no nothing at all. Cell phones were not <laughs> around, obviously. And the first newspaper I see is Hank Stram in England, and, and he had been in England and Germany to try out professional soccer players and rugby players to bring him back to camp to compete against me, which he did for my rookie year in 68. And actually, one of them, Horst Muehlman, kicked for Cincinnati, was in the league for about 10 years. The guy called Bobby Howfield lasted for a few years. So this went on for next two or three years, and it wasn't until maybe the third or fourth year in the league that I thought, you know, I, I've been, this is kind of a God-given talent. I may not find anybody for a while that actually could kick it harder than I did. You know, that is part of it. You've got to have decent distance to begin with, and they got to work on getting between the goalposts. But uh, so it was always, I had to say this for night, and of course, then more and more Americans get started, and more and more soccer was being played. So uh, every year for 19 years, uh, I always felt that if I had two bad games in a row, you're out of a job. And that's, and that's, that's my, what was my approach. And there were a lot of good kickers in camps over the years. Very good kickers. So, well, what's amazing to me is 1965. Before before that, you know that meeting when you become a kicker, you've never kicked before. Next thing you know, it's it's 1968. You're all AFL kicker at 75 percent. The league's averaging about 50 55 percent, and and now you're you're the field you're the field goal kicker for the Super Bowl champions in 1969. Five years after you do it for the first time, where they get you off the ski jump. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah I guess it is. When I, when you hear, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's, it's it, silly. It is, it is, uh, no, it, it's uh, no. There's no question that it is. Uh, it wasn't scripted that way at all. And uh, it, no, I, I'm so thankful for uh, what took place. You know, uh, obviously I had the talent to do it, but still to be discarded Sweeney. He could, bait, he could have forgotten about it, but he was just great. Instead of making a circus out of it, hell, now in, in early in practice, now you run down with the wide receiver and the quarterback. The quarterback, well, you got to blend in as much as you can. I never played football. Even when I came to Kansas City, Hank says, what the hell are we going to do with you? What are we going to do in practice? You know, he never played. So he, so I just stood around and hold the bag, but he was somebody on the punt return team that we didn't have anybody. At least they ran down the field. And I could do things okay, but I could, you know, there's no way I could play any kind of football. Uh, I didn't have any experience. And then when Larry Dawson would throw it to me, I caught it most of the time. But that was just, you know, in warm up. But anyway, no, it was uh, also timing, Brad. 
uh, you know, they went to a 40-man squad in about 65, I think, from 38, it was 33 a few years before that. And kicking became more and more important. If I'd been there a few years earlier when that 33-man squad in the pros, they wouldn't have it. They wouldn't have made room for a person that could only kick. You know, in my, the, uh, the the time I was a rookie, though, every team had a guy that kicked exclusively the AFL, except for George Blanda, of course. You know, so so the timing the timing was everything too. And Sweeney giving me the opportunity, he could have just said, "I don't really need this," you know, but he he told me that I was going to be terrific. <laughs> from uh, it's, it's pretty, me, I guess. So, yeah, it's pretty give awesome. Me so, give me a lot of confidence. 68 uh, all AFL, 69 all AFL, Super Bowl champ. Uh, you're an all pro and, and go to a, your first Pro Bowl in 70, your second Pro Bowl in 71. You're an all pro in 74. You go to the Pro Bowl in 75. Uh, after the 79 season, you head to Green Bay. Now, how was that for well, you? Because you, you, were, you were with Kansas City for a long time. I mean, it's kind of all you knew. And next thing you know, you're headed to Green Bay uh, for the 1980 well, season. I'll tell you how it happened. <laughs> 1979, oh, oh, uh, Marv Levy came to town in 77, I think. And, uh, but anyway, uh, I did, didn't have a good year, I remember. A terrible year from, uh, compared to the other years. Because also keep in mind, field goal percentage. Keep in mind, I think even during my Super Bowl year, I think I had four holders and three snappers during the season. And we practiced after training camp. It was about five minutes on Friday afternoon you kick for the center and the holder. That's why you can see the percentages with 50, 55% for the league. Because the quarterback was typically the holder and the center played. You know, he snapped. And he was busy practicing and playing football. And there were no nets on the sideline, and the fields weren't very good. And they took for seven yards, and there were quite a few kicks blocked. But what happened, I actually, Marie, decided uh, to keep Nick Lowry instead of me. We had a pretty spirited training camp. I think we did. I, I felt like I did fine. I, I thought I was going to make the team. But looking back, Nick turned out to be a very good kicker for the Chiefs, and he was 15 years younger. So it was the right thing to do. I didn't like it at the time, obviously. But I sat out most of the season, and I, uh, so the, the last couple of years, Marv Levy was a strong believer in hang time, even on kickoffs. He wanted me to have the kickoffs higher, and long as it, the hang time was good. So that landed maybe five-yard line, three, four-yard line, instead of going deep in the end zone, which I used to kick off before. So I think most of the teams thought my leg was gone. But so Bart Starr, Calls me with four or five games left in the year, the season 1980. I was almost done, almost done. And he said, can you still kick? I had trouble with my kicker up here. And I said, Bart, I can. So I went up there for the last four or five games in 80. On the plane back from Detroit, he said, I want you to come to camp. And I said, Bart, I went through the same thing in Kansas City last year. If you know, I, I felt like I competed favorably, but I didn't make the team. And Bart says, you got my word. We're going to bring in some kickers, but if you're the best kicker in camp, the job is yours. Well, I believe 100% in Bart Starr. I went to camp and really had my best year in 1981. I kicked over 90%. I've missed two kicks the whole season. And I was in Green Bay. I made uh, for four years, and then we lost in 1983, an eight-and-eight eight season, and Bart was fired 
and you don't fire a bar star. <laughs> He's the right. finest man and the best. And also, by that time, that year we had a tremendous offense. They scored over 40 points in several games. We couldn't stop anybody. But anyway, I get traded to Minnesota in my 18th year. But I do make the Pro Bowl up there at that time. And then my next year, 43, Bud Grant, the last tackle traded for me. Bud Grant came back and coached against me in Super Bowl four. Now I'm on the team with him 15 years later. But he was absolutely great. But I, I had a bad back, and I kind of limped through the season, and I was totally done. Yeah, you're an all-pro. and, and so it was went four, to you. four years in Green Bay. After 13 in Kansas City, my last two in, in Minnesota. And, I have to say this. Uh, fortunately, don't be in all three teams. Kansas City had a tremendous fan base. And I came here after the Chiefs had played in Super Bowl One. Uh, I signed actually a couple of weeks before Super Bowl One, but I wasn't eligible to the next year. So I was a rookie the next year. And this town was on fire because of the Chiefs. And then when I go to Green Bay, a town of 100,000 people. At that time, the stadium seated less than 60,000. Now they seat 80. Totally sold out and 60,000 names on the waiting list. Uh, if you haven't played in the NFL, uh, you missed out on something. It's phenomenal when it comes to football interest, obviously, and fans. And then going to Minnesota, too, a lot of the Scandinavian people were, it was kind of a blessing, too. So it, it was it was a great experience, Brad. After 85, you retire, uh, Hall of Fame career. And now I got some questions for you about your routine. You are a kicker. You said at first you didn't know what to do. You talked about the holder, the long snapper, how that how important were those guys? And and were those guys when everybody else is doing their drills, offense is working with offense, defense is working defense. Who are your guys? Are you with the long snapper, the holder? Is is well, that your crew that you're kind of working with? No, don't say we didn't have a special long snapper. We didn't have a long snapper. The center they typically snapped, obviously. Right. That's what they done in college. So we didn't have something specialized in that. We didn't break into punters to become holders until late 70s. So every year I kicked in Kansas City, the quarterback always held for me. And Lenny Dawson did it most of the time. Uh, so but the practice, we have one practice field. Before the game, after the warm-ups, stretching or whatever, I would go, and the grass was long enough, I could balance the football in the grass. So it could stand on itself in the grass. I kicked it over to the punter, Gerald Wilson, who was a great punter. He would punt it back. We did that for about five, ten minutes, beginning of every practice. Then we go around and held the bag and stood around. And the practice sessions were short. The longest practice session was less than an hour and a half, maybe an hour and 20 minutes. Some of them were shorter. Now they're out there for two and a half hours or more. Uh, so uh, and we showed up for uh, Monday was off after a game. Uh, about 15 years, 12, 13 years later, starting coming in on Monday and have Tuesday off to get that everything from the experience the week before behind you, I suppose. And then they show up for offense a day on Wednesday. The offense met at 1 o'clock. The rest of the team met at 2 o'clock. On the practice field by 3.30, and they gone before 5. On Thursday, the defensive team shows up at 1. The rest of the team at 2 o'clock. Out in the field by 3.30, dressed ready to go home at 5 o'clock. And then we didn't practice on Saturday. We traveled or stayed home on the home games. So it, it, it was different. It was very different, but I mean, it was still, it was, it was, it was big league. I mean, we were good. We had a lot of great, great players. And, and, um, I mean, it was tremendous. It was almost like today, 
I, the competition was, the, the tires were great. They were, it's almost like 50 years from today. They're going to go back in the 2021 or two. They weren't like they are today in 2070. They probably weren't very, nearly as good as we were in the, these days, but <laughs> they have a lot of greatness many, many years ago. It's, it, it's really an interesting position, the kicker, because it's such an isolated position. It seems like just as a fan watching, it's like nobody pays attention to you and, uh, more times than not, you're the most important guy in the building. Uh, two seconds to go on the clock. You make the field goal. Game's over. You win. You miss it. You lose. What is Jan Stenner? What's going through your mind? What's your What's your preparation? What 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 are you thinking? Right at that time, you know, do, you, do you have a routine yeah. you go through? Well, I didn't have a routine. I wish I had. I played a lot of golf over the years. And then, you know, when you have a pressure shot in golf, I think most of the guys that just go through the routine that takes away from the pressure kind of because you have a certain thing you do. When I lined up, I didn't even take the step backwards and then to the side. I just kind of lined up in an angle that looked about right, <laughs> frankly. So now on the sideline, you know what's on the line. Not only is the game on the line, your job is on the line. Uh, the fans, uh, what I think of you, everything is on the line. You, no question you get a little bit nervous on the sideline, but I do remember this. Once the uh, coach's field goal team, I don't really remember or hearing the crowd at all. Uh, the only thing I, I learned over the years, early on, I didn't do that. I said, I do remember after, after failing a couple of times, slow it down because things happen faster. The last play of the game and you get to feel like that. Instead of kicking, you know, if it's a time again, when the, the, the clock starts, the stopwatch starts when the ball is snapped, the holder catches it, turns it, puts it on the ground, and then by the time the ball, foot hit the ball, we practice in 1.3 seconds. The first couple of times I went into a game, I kicked it at 1.2 or faster anyway. So I, so I learned slow it down. Although if you try to slow it down, you're still going to be every bit as fast as practice. But the thing is, I remember I was successful most of the time, but what, you, what I remember the most, Brad, it isn't the ones that I made, which was quite a few late in the game. But I missed a couple late in the game, and one of them was a, on the playoff game. And it, that's what I remember. Uh, be, why, don't I, why do I not dwell on the, the one I made? Because you're supposed to make them. So, so I remember the times... When I failed, I'm not going to go and, and ruin my day every day over the fact, but, but, uh, but that's what I remember more. Even when I, and I don't really but I have to say this. If I go, for example, to a, some people want to uh, give me a talk or talk about this or that, I can, I can give them a pretty good talk about kicks that I made and what circumstance they were and, and how great you feel and all that type of thing. But the pressure was on, no question about it. And I was successful most of the time. But the few times that it didn't work out, uh, that's what uh, I kind of remember. I couldn't even, I think I kicked about approximately 25 games to kicks to win. I remember Minnesota and Greenville was five in one season. I remember in 83. But, but if I think back, I doubt if I could think of 15 or 16 out of the 25 that I remember. 
Yeah, you're right, though. People don't remember. You could pick you you could kick 10 game winning field goals in a row. You missed that 11th. That's what they talk about. Oh, Jan missed that field goal. And <laughs> get, you know, and it's like that's why that what that's what for me, uh, you know, because I was graded daily. But if but if I had a rough game, it's like I still got tomorrow to go get him. Man, that that being a kicker, it's such a unique position on a team. Maybe the most unique in all of sports is being yeah, that kicker. I mean, it could be the you're, you're you're the king of the city, or it could be a lonely job. Yeah, no question. Brett, I have I know a little bit about you. I know some of your stats. You had a lot of terrific numbers for 14 years. I I know this also. I didn't know you hit over 250 home runs. I didn't know that. I didn't know. Yeah, that. yeah. I barely I barely squeaked. I squeaked over that 250 mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's quite a few. 1991, uh, you go into the Green Bay Hall of Fame. The neat thing for me, and, and we'll get to the big one in, in a minute, uh, you get your number retired in Kansas City. And, and I talk to guys, I talk to Hall of Famers all the time, and, and, and it's one thing going into the Green Bay Hall of Fame, going into the, to the Kansas City Hall of Fame. But you get your number retired. That, that, that's another level. When you walk into that stadium and you see your name up on those rafters and no one will ever wear your number again, take me through that briefly and, and how cool that is when you yeah. get that phone call. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background first. When I went up to Green Bay, of course, I was number three in Kansas City for, in my 14th season. And they said, well, you can't wear that. Number three is retired. It was Tony Canadale. He was a great running back in the 40s and 50s. He gone to school at Gonzaga. It's not known for football today. They don't have one, you know, have football games. So, so then I got to uh, Minnesota. They gave me number three again. And then uh, later, when I got into the whole family, Lamar Hunt decided to retire. I think it was uh, Len Dawson. Uh, it was Bobby Bell, Buck Buchanan. Uh, hang on a second. Now, Will Lanier and myself at that time, they were in the Hall of Fame. And it's so... Uh, way back, he retired. He, Lamar Hunt, the owner, decided to retire those numbers. And the first one I, was Bobby Bell was the first before Lenny, I remember. So, no, it feels, uh, you know, of course, it's a tremendous honor. I I don't know how to describe it. I don't think of it that much because time goes on, Brett. When I get around Kansas City today, or even go to the games, the only people that know me are the people with white hair and gray hair. And uh, <laughs> lot of, <laughs> almost all of them will say hello. <laughs> and some of the new ones don't. So I, I don't really dwell much on it. Many days that goes by, maybe a week or month sometimes. I don't even think about any of these things. But then sometimes you sit around, have a beer with some of your teammates, and you go through all the stats. I have to admit, it's pretty goddamn neat. And and uh, lucky, I, I guess I had some talent. And uh, you know, it, it's uh, uh, it, it is humbling. It's when you, when you talk like that and bring out some of the things. Um, I'm I'm proud of that, but I uh, but that isn't uh, something that I think about very often. I just feel like, gosh, it could have stopped when. But what if Bart Starr hadn't called? in my 14th year. You could have stopped right. right then and there. I was talking about maybe have Hall of Fame credentials then, but what if, what if some things here and there, what if, what if, what if Sweeney, when he said, thought it was a 
49-yard field goal. Since they were 59-yard. Of course, Sweeney was scared to say after the game. He said, well, God darn it, I thought it was 49. But he probably knew. But a lot of things that could happen. What if I hadn't gone down on the field and the basketball coach hadn't seen me mess around down there one day? What if I didn't have that one great, really good jump in Norway Nationals in 19, Junior National 1962? If I hadn't finished so high in that particular meet, I wouldn't have got the letter from, you know, from the coach and from Thor at Montana State. So there are a lot of things. What, what if I didn't have all these great teammates and coaches in Kansas City and at Montana State, same way? The teammates that were so gracious and so great to me. So a lot of things that a lot of people help you along the way. Yeah, you. I mean, it seems like it from from all your stories, it's you were right place, right time, a lot of the time. Game on the line. All all the games you've ever watched, all the kickers that you, that you've watched. Game on the line. You can't pick yourself. You got one kick, and and everything's on the line. This is for the whole kit and caboodle. Other than yourself, who are you sending out there for that one kick? And you can pick anybody. Oh, boy, that's hard to do, hard to say. Of course, I tell you what, we, that's, I could name right now. We got to, you know, Venetary was, you know, I thought he was going to say, what kick did you enjoy watching the most? It was probably Venetary, the first one you made from 48 yards in the Superdome, I think, many, many, in the Super Bowl. But and he was great. Morton Anderson was great. There were a lot of people. But this young man up in uh, in Baltimore, Jason Tucker, and we got a really good kicker in Kansas City. Uh, you know, Harrison Butker is tremendous. Uh, but the, this uh, Harrison um, uh, uh, Tucker in, in Baltimore, he has really separated himself a little bit, and that's hard to do because everybody's so darn good these days. And uh, he has, uh, and I watched him pregame. I was on the field with him in the Hall of Fame game a few years back. I mean, nothing is left to chance. You just kind of, you don't kind of glance at it. I mean, it is it's a science almost. So I guess for right at this this time, right here, right now, uh, I guess I've had to pick him to put him in in that situation. Justin Tucker. Very cool. Snap gone bad. Did you practice that in practice for that time where where that it, something just goes bad and now you got these monsters yeah. chasing you? You got the one yeah. bar across your helmet, and, and yeah. what do you do? Is is there a play for that? Since I am lined up at the other side, the ball goes to. I remember at Montana State one year against the arch rival University of Montana. They won thirty eight nothing, but it's snapping over the holder's hands and. I ran after it and I fell on it, you know, to protect the ball. I I knew that much, and I get a I get a stat. stat. I'm minus 13 yards in rushing. That was my only rushing yard at Montana State. No, we had no, we had you know fake plays where if it's a bad if it's a bad snap, typically the the holder can kind of recover, but it's too late to put it down. You know, so he he or me would scream out fire fire. That was the audible in most teams. So now. People that are facing the other way that know something's coming, the snap is a mess. Something's happened back there, and then they have they've been told to run a pass pattern, you know, that the, that the that the holder knows about. It happens, but but you prepare for that too. Uh, 2019, you're part of that hundredth anniversary team. Pretty awesome. I've had a few guys on the, on the show, uh, that are a part of that team. Steve Largent, Brett Favre, I believe Walter Jones. It's a red jacket. Uh, 
you were part of that team. Pretty unbelievable. But the big one and, and what the guys say that are on both teams that I've talked and, and interacted with was there's nothing like the Hall of Fame. 1991, there's only five kickers in the history of the, of the Hall of Fame. Uh, take me through that call when you get that call in 91. You're going to the Hall. Yeah, Brett, there's only – there was only – when I got in 91, I was the, the – the term they came up with, I guess it was the – uh, uh, the uh, marketing man for the Hall of Fame. I was called the first, but then the word, the first pure kicker in the Hall of Fame. In other words, I was the first one that could do anything else in the Hall of Fame to kick. And uh, and then, of course, Morton Anderson after that, and the people asked me who's going to be next, and my prediction is Terry, of course. But anyway, it was, uh, when I was nominated, I got a letter from the Hall of Fame saying they nominated as a finalist, and that was in my first year of eligibility. And I saw all these 15 finalists, there were 15 men. They didn't go to the semifinals, never and ever in the, in the news of those days. And I saw all these names, that was the only kicker ever to be the, the top 15. And I saw the names, oh, there's no way. And the next thing I know that if I give you a place to be on the day before the Super Bowl, where are you going to be? What's your phone number? And uh, and uh, I was actually in a parade on in Tampa for the 25-year uh, Silver Anniversary Super Bowl team. And I called back to the hotel in a cell phone. And I, I had heard at a certain time they said it would call. I hadn't heard at that time, so I thought, well, I guess I didn't make it. I called the hotel. My son answers the phone. And, and oh, no. The, the, the phone was busy. There were six calls waiting on the line. So I thought, well, that might be a pretty good sign. I told to break in, and my son was talking to a writer for the for the uh, USA Today, and I said, Dad, you're in, you're in, you're in. And uh, and that was, uh, you know, that was remarkable, of course. And now all those scientists from that year uh, are in the Hall of Fame. The year I went in, it was Earl Campbell, John Hanna, Tex Ramey was the general manager, of course, of the Dallas Cowboys. And Stan Jones was the terrific offense and defensive lineman for the Chicago Bears and the, and the Redskins. So I just had to, I mean, that's, and also I thought, what the hell is Chuck Bednarik or, or Ray Nitschke or Dick Butkus and, and, uh, and Alex Karras, I wasn't in the Hall of Fame. What did Deacon Jones say about a kicker in the Hall of Fame or whatever? They were so nice to me. They just treated me like I was, uh, it was a des- deserving Hall of Famer. It was all terrific, all terrific. Uh, but I didn't. Uh, it, it was very humbling, and and it's hard to believe that it actually happened that way. But it did. We'll get you out of your here in a couple. I know you got to run, but I'm interested. You bring up the golf. I know you're a golfer. Uh, I and I was thinking about you last night going over this, and I'm thinking, you know, kicking is probably like hitting a wedge. When you hit that perfect wedge, and you hear that sound, that pure. I'm sure some t- most of the time you get it pure, but there's times where you hit it a little fat. Is that an accurate depiction of, of kicking and, no, and no, I, hitting a wedge? I, well, you know, I I am I got down to about a three handicap for quite some time. I was okay and uh, sipping now, but anyway, the thing is, Brad, when I kick field goals, I hardly ever really miss hit it. And that's the fact, even if there was, you know, I can't remember, I can never ever recall missing a kick by five feet right or left. All the misses were really close. 
you know? So I, I, can't, I, I very seldom in practice that I actually, I made pretty solid contact just about every time. Well, the no, greatest like golfers, the, the greatest, the greatest golfers in the world, they hit it pretty pure every time, right? Me and you sit there and yeah, play but, with a pro. Yeah. We look at him and go, "Wow, that's pretty awesome." But that's what he does for a living. That's what, you're one of the greatest kickers of all time. I'm sure most of the time you caught it pretty pure. Yeah, but also I can hear you know it depends upon the miss because Ben Hogan I think was quoted as saying that the you know, only hit two really perfect good shots during a round or whatever. So <laughs> the, the misses I would say. You know, there are times that they're not quite flush, but almost all time you get you get ninety percent of it or more. You know, but when a golfer like Hogan or Tiger or Nicholas and those guys or Watson, they probably talk about when he's absolutely total flush. You know, but right. I never can recall fifty, sixty, seventy percent hit. It was a, I would have to say there were ninety percent and up almost every time in in practice or, or in the game. Because it's, it's less marginal error of that that is in a long golf swing. But but still, no, I was hit pretty solid almost every time. When it's all said and done, Jan Stenerud, what are you most proud of? Well, I'm not prepared for that. I don't know. I'd, uh, I think, I hope I haven't, uh, I hope I have, um, behaved pretty well, uh, and uh, and haven't uh, done something that to people that's been uh, been wrong. I I I like to think I, I try to treat people nice, and I've been treated nice by people. And uh, I think my parents tried to teach me to be a decent human being, and I hope I hope I'm, I'm trying to, to strive to do that. Uh, and it's not for me to judge myself on that, but I, at least that's what I'm aiming for. Jan, this has been a pleasure. This has been a lot of fun. It was interesting getting to catch up, getting to getting to meet you recently. We had a golf event, and that's where it's on. I enjoyed it too, Brad, very much. Yes, I did. And I and I appreciate it. What a career! What a life! What a, what a cool life and a great story. And and uh, the humbleness comes through the phone. But I really appreciate you coming on the Boone Podcast. And what we do each and every Boone Podcast at the end of the podcast is we bring back Dan, the voice of the podcast, Dano. That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast. EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera Digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast. Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports, make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone 29. I'm Dan Levy, BASS on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.